Good morning, Grace. Last week, we started our new series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So today, we're in Ezra 2, so please turn in your Bibles there. Ezra 2, in my mind, is affectionately known as the gospel according to 42,360 homeless people. And I hope to convince you of that today. So Ezra chapter 2, as Pastor James mentioned, I will be teaching a class on discipleship at 6 o'clock tonight in the education building across the parking lot. It's for people who say, hey, I may not be a Christian. I don't know what this Jesus thing is about. I want you to be there. Maybe you're a new believer. I want you to be there. Maybe you've been a seasoned, mature believer, and you just want to learn how to make disciples or have that reinforced. That's what we are about here at Grace is making disciples who know how to make disciples. That's why you'll hear our tagline, making disciple-making disciples. We don't want to make disciples and it just stops there for them. We want them to know as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are called to make disciples who go and make more disciples. So even if you didn't sign up, show up at 6 o'clock. I would love for you to be there. Ezra chapter 2, and let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you for him because he is living proof that you love broken, messy sinners. Your son Jesus is living proof that you can't keep away from messy sinners, that you want to be around us, and that's why you sent your son, and it's why you've given us the Spirit as a down payment guaranteeing eternal joy with you in your presence. So we thank you at the outset of this sermon for your son Jesus and all that he is for us. Be honored and glorified as we read and look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezra chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Ba'anah. The number of the men of the people of Israel the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 775. The sons of Pahath-Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zechai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Etur, namely Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gebar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anatoth, 128. The sons of Osmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath-Arim, Sheparah, and Beeroth, 743. 
The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hated, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sena'ah, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Hadaviah. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Paddan, the sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bakbu, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Naziah, and the sons of Hatifah. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Ja'alah, the sons of Darkon. The sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth Hazabaim, the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Kerub, Aden, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habaiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns 
and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Now, doesn't this chapter just warm your heart? (laughs) Nothing like a bunch of dead, homeless people to ignite your spiritual appetite. Nothing like a bunch of weird Hebrew names to get your spiritual juices flowing. So-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. So what? We may be tempted to skim these verses. I understand that. Preachers may be tempted to skim these verses because they fear it will take up too much time in their sermon. Even as an Old Testament major in seminary, these verses are hard reading. I mean, forget application. I just want to make it through the list. But this is God's word. And Paul tells us in Romans 15, verse 4, that the Old Testament scriptures were written down for us so that we would be encouraged, so that we would endure, so that we would have hope. So Ezra 2 was written so that we would be encouraged, we would endure, and we would have hope. Now, maybe you weren't encouraged by the reading. Maybe you struggled to endure the reading. Maybe you hoped when you turned the page that it would stop at verse 50. Is the Apostle Paul for real? Encouragement from this chapter? Yes. And if you struggle to endure the reading of this chapter, then get some hope from Paul in Ephesians 4, where he says that God has given pastors and teachers to the church to build them up in the faith, to help them grow to maturity, and to increase in the knowledge of God, so that they will not be tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine, but they may hear the truth of God. And that's what I plan on doing with Ezra chapter 2, to encourage you to equip you, to give you hope, to build you up, and to help you grow. And I'm going to use a list of homeless, dead Israelites to do so by God's grace. Who knew reading the church membership roles, reading the church directory, could actually be a means of grace? And we're actually only going to look at the first 35 verses today. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Duh, Benji, because there's no way you could preach a sermon on 70 verses. You don't have enough time. That may be true. But when you see that these 70 verses are just a lengthy genealogy, then you may be surprised that I have to preach it over the course of two sermons. It's true. There's just too much gold to be mined from this seemingly boring list of people. So much gold to be mined that I had to break it up into two sermons. Besides, Old Testament genealogies are my forte. They're my specialty. I love preaching hard Old Testament texts. I really take Paul at his word in Romans 15, and I hope by the end of this sermon, you will too. The big idea that seeps out of the cracks of these verses is this. Whenever you mess up, don't give up. Keep looking up. Whenever you mess up your life, don't give up. Keep looking up to Jesus, the Redeemer, Jesus, your Savior. Now, I know what you're thinking. Really? 
You get that out of Ezra 2. You get, whenever you mess up, don't give up, keep looking up out of 35 verses full of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names. My answer, yes. If you read between the lines, then you will arrive at this conclusion. Now, we don't want to read into the text. That's called eisegesis, reading into it, forcing something on the text. We want to do what's called exegesis. We want to draw forth truth from the passage, out of the passage. But we do want to and need to read between the lines of this particular passage and make some connections with what we saw last week in Ezra chapter 1 and Jeremiah 29. When we dig a little deeper, we think a little harder, we think a little longer, and we ask a few questions, I think we'll come to the conclusion that these homeless Israelites teach us to not give up even if we've made a mess of our lives. The hope of the gospel is precisely what kept these people afloat for 70 years in exile in a foreign land. Well, how did the Israelites mess up their life? If you missed last week, we get a reminder of it in verse 1. So look at verse 1 again. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. You've got to read verse 1 slowly and read it and be pained by it the way an Israelite would read it. Twice the word captive or captivity is used and once the word exile. Ezra chapter 2 verse 1 is a reminder that this was the darkest period of Israel's history. They were carried away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, and actually Judah had been carried away, or Israel, uh, by the Assyrians years before. But they were carried away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, because they had turned away from worshiping Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. The nations of Israel and Judah messed up their lives because they loved and worshipped the gods of Babylon. And in a weird twist of fate, they were carted off to the very land where these supposed gods were from. As if the Lord was saying, you want to love them and worship them? I'll let you go and be where they live. But understand this truth about the exile. Not every person who was exiled was living in disobedience to the Lord. There was a remnant of believers, as there is always a remnant of believers that love the Lord, that are faithful to the Lord. Sinful, yes, but faithful, and they love him. But the majority of the nation had turned away from Yahweh to serve other gods, and the faithful remnant who loved him, they were carted off along with the disobedient to Babylon. But remember what we saw last week. The Lord stirred the prophet Jeremiah's heart to write a letter to these exiles to give them hope. Jeremiah's letter included a promise from Yahweh that he would restore his people to Jerusalem, to the land, to the city of God after 70 years of captivity. We saw it in Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 10 through 14. The Lord said through Jeremiah to his people shortly after they arrived, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my 
promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So even though Israel and Judah had severely messed up their lives because of sin and rebellion. Jeremiah's letter to them was meant to be an encouragement. Jeremiah's letter contained a giant promise from the Lord that they could cling to for 70 years while they're in Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah's letter was basically saying this, whenever you mess up, don't give up. Keep looking up. Keep looking to God's promise. Keep looking to the God of promise. And Israel could do just that because of the promise of God sent by Jeremiah in his letter to the exiles. R.C. Sproul says this about our promise-keeping God. We exist as the people of God because he has made and kept promises to his people. We can be a part of the family of God only because our God makes and keeps covenants. God never breaks or changes his promises. They are everlasting promises to which God has committed himself forever. The hardest thing in the world for the Christian is to live by faith rather than by sight. Living by faith involves trusting the promises of God. Throughout history, God has demonstrated that he is supremely trustworthy. That's why, in one sense, nothing could be more foolish than not to trust in the promises of God. When God makes a covenant with his people, he can punish them for breaking his covenant, but he never abandons the covenant promises that he makes. Israel indeed broke covenant with the Lord. So that he punished them with 70 years in exile in Babylon. But the Lord never abandons his people. He never breaks the covenant promises that he makes. This was the hope that Israel could cling to for 70 years while they were in exile. While they waited for restoration. And this hope, no doubt, was reinforced through covenant families. That's what we see in verses 2 through 35. We won't read all those names again. I'm sorry, that probably bothers some of you. You prefer me to read them again. It probably makes some of you mad that I'm not going to read all of these names again. I should read all of these names again because we don't have a name picked out for our sixth child yet. I was kind of thinking about verse 27, Michmas. Michmas Magnus kind of has a nice ring to it. Verse 30, Magbish Magnus also has a nice ring to it. Actually, verse 56 contains the name that I've tried with two kids already, unsuccessfully with my wife. Heather isn't buying it. I try to get on Thursday night to make a push for this name, Darkon. Darkon Magnus. I said, this, he's going to be a strong warrior of a child. Well, we found out on Friday that we're having a girl, so 
Darkon won't work, but I did, I did actually make a petition. I was like, oh, what about Darkette? <laughs> kind of strong, kind of feminine. She's not buying it. Well, we won't read these names again. We could, but we won't. But notice that the people in verses 2 through 35 are just average Joes. They're just ordinary people. By ordinary, I mean that they weren't priests or Levites that we'll look at next week in the rest of the chapter. They were lay people, but they were important because they are a part of the people of God. So verses 2 through 35 give us a list of ordinary Israelites who were so enthralled with God. He was their treasure that they left their cush jobs and their easy life supported by the new government of Persia. And they forsake all of that to be homeless worshipers in Israel. And many of them in a land they had never seen before. What would cause them to do this? What would cause them to leave their cush jobs and their easy life supported by the new government of Persia and then forsake all of that to be homeless worshipers in Israel in a land that many of them had never even seen before? I think it was the hope of the gospel that caused them to do this. I think it was their hope in the promises of God. I think it was 70 years of waiting and hoping in the promise of restoration that caused them to leave Persia behind. I think it was 70 years of families doing discipleship and continually rehearsing the promises of God. Now, why do I say that discipleship was taking place within the families? I say that because what is the one Hebrew word here that gets repeated continually throughout this chapter? The ESV translates this Hebrew word as sons. It's the Hebrew word ben. Now, that's a great name for a kid, Ben Magnus. That has a great ring to it. Over and over again. Throughout this chapter, you have the word sons or children repeated. Why? I think if we read between the lines, then we will see that family worship, family discipleship was happening over the course of these 70 years while Israel was in exile. Don't miss the author's point here, Grace. He's trying to get you to see that covenant runs in families. The gospel spreads through families as moms and dads take seriously the call to disciple their own children. Don't miss what the author of Ezra and Nehemiah is saying. Sons, daughters, Children, kids, munchkins, pass the promises of God on to your children and do not give up. Keep talking to them about Jesus. Catechize your kids. Read the Bible to them. Tell them about God. Keep pointing them to Jesus. Now, remember, Where was Israel for 70 years? In exile, in captivity. Why? Because of their sin. Because they had seriously messed up their lives. But did their sin and their rebellion and their shame and their guilt paralyze them? No, I think they owned their sin. I think they told their kids, we're from another land originally. 
But we're in exile now because of our sin. Because we messed up. We messed up our lives big time. But our God, Yahweh, is faithful. He keeps covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations. He is merciful. He keeps his promises. He forgives. His love never ceases. And I think that's why you have the word sons repeated over and over again. Because the parents kept discipling their kids. Even though they had totally messed up their lives. When you read a seemingly boring genealogy that is full of dead people with really weird names that are hard to pronounce, let every weird, hard-to-pronounce name, every time you read the word sons, let that be a reminder to you that whenever you mess up, don't give up, keep looking up. That's what the Israelites did. They kept looking to Yahweh. They kept looking to him. They kept looking up promises in his word. And they shared this with their kids. Because remember, some of these kids were born in Babylon, had never even seen Jerusalem, and had only heard of it. Why would they leave an easy life to go back somewhere to do the hard work of rebuilding the city and the temple when they'd never seen it, unless they had heard continually from their parents, Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh is good. Yahweh is merciful. He is our treasure in this life. We love him more than anything in the world. They just kept sharing it with their kids. Now listen, I know the temptation to give up, and I know the despair when it comes to discipling your kids. Do you ever wonder are they listening? Are they even getting it? You try to have a quiet time, you read your Bible, one stands up, they start playing with the blinds in the room, the other one goes over there, and you're like, hello, we're reading God's word here. Do you ever wonder, are they getting it? How many of you ask your kids, and you'll ask them today, what did you learn in Sunday school? And they say, I don't know, I don't remember. That happened to us last week. Heather taught a class with one of our kids in it, and I came home after preaching the third service and was eating lunch, and she asked one of our kids, what was the lesson about? And the response was, I don't know. And then she pressed a little further, and all she got was disciples. Now, he was distracted playing a game, but we may be tempted to give up to think that our kids aren't getting it, that it's not sticking but it is. It's God's word. As God says in Isaiah 55, 11, his word will not return void or empty, but will accomplish what he purposes. In fact, I got great encouragement this week along these lines. Someone sent me an email to say that they were praying for me, and they sent me this link to a sermon on YouTube by John Piper. And so I was watching a little clip of this sermon, and MacArthur was preaching, and he said the word gospel. Now, I'd been watching this in the van on my iPhone because Heather and I were a few minutes early to her doctor's appointment. So we're sitting there in the van. Piper, she's two years old. She's in her seat still buckled. And we're watching this little video on YouTube of John MacArthur. And so after several minutes of preaching, MacArthur says the word gospel in his sermon. And right away, Piper, our two-year-old, says, gospel! And I was like, did she just say gospel? Yes, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Actually, her 
one of her middle names is gospel, Evangeline. So I was just like, yes. Like of all the words MacArthur said, she hears gospel. It says gospel, which means she's heard it in our home and here at church. Don't give up, parents. Your kids are listening and they are absorbing just like these Israelite kids listed here in Ezra 2. God is working in the hearts of your children just as he was working in the hearts of the sons of Pahath Moab and just as he was working in the hearts of the children of Magbish and Michmas and Asmaveth to name a few. You know, why don't we just stop right here and take a moment to pray for our kids and for the children here at Grace. Father, thank you that your word will not return void. There are kids listening right now to the preaching of your word. There are kids hearing your word in different classes. I pray that the gospel would stick that they would hear about you and be enthralled with you and treasure you above all things. And they would know, God, when they mess up and they will mess up because they're sinners, that they would not despair and give up. They would keep looking to your son, Jesus. So, God, I pray that for the parents that we would not give up, that we would not tire of discipling our kids, you would keep working in their hearts, regenerate them, draw them by your spirit to treasure Jesus above all things. Do it so that you get great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This is why Paul stops in the middle of his letter sometimes and just lets out this big praise as he's writing a letter and lets out a big prayer because he's overwhelmed with the truth. So that's why I just did that. Not in my notes. Clearly, God was stirring his people's hearts here. Ezra 1.5 that we saw last week says that Yahweh stirred up his people's hearts to return to Israel. Ezra 1.5 says, Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, I don't think this stirring of hearts that Ezra 1.5 is talking about just happened in their hearts, that it just happened in this vacuum. I don't think that the nation of Israel was numb to the Lord for 70 years. Now, some of them were, obviously. But I don't think that the nation of Israel was numb to the Lord for 70 years. They were angry and mad at him. And then all of a sudden, boom, he starts stirring their hearts so that they have a passion to see his glory displayed. I think God was stirring what was already happening in their hearts. I think families were seriously discipling their children and the nation, for the most part, was clinging to Yahweh's promise in the letter of Jeremiah. And so that's why we have this first of several waves of exiles that make their way back to Jerusalem because it was already happening in their hearts. They were already loving the Lord and he began stirring and fanning those flames even more. I think for the most part, the nation got a wake-up call with the exile, and they turned their hearts to the Lord, and they did not begin to become like the world. Namely, they did not become Babylonians. They did not easily absorb and take on Babylonian culture. Now, typically, this is what happens when a new generation grows up in a foreign place. But I don't think that happened with Israel. I think they got a wake-up call, and they were serving the Lord. In my years of working at Starbucks, I met and befriended a lot of Ethiopians. There's a huge Ethiopian community in Dallas, and they love Starbucks. And they love putting sugar in their Starbucks. And they would come in, and I would talk with them, ask them about their kids. 
And I found out that the kids of these Ethiopian transplants were not like their parents. They almost wanted nothing to do with their Ethiopian culture back home. They were more American than they were Ethiopian. They had adopted American culture as their culture because they were either born in America or they came to America when they were very young. All they've known is America. So they were very much American to the pain of their parents. That's typically what happens when a younger generation grows up in a different country. But I don't think that that was happening to the Israelites in Babylon. Sure, some it would have happened to. But I think for the most part, they kept their Israelite culture and their distinction as evidenced by 42,360 Israelites who hear the call to go back home and be homeless worshipers and they get on the first bus. They knew they would have no jobs. They knew they would be homeless and sleeping in tents. So how did this happen? This stirring, I think it was family discipleship. You know why? Because some of the parents that were taken in handcuffs to Babylon had already died. And for some reason, their kids say, I want to go back to Israel. I've never seen it, but I've heard about it. I think that stirring in their hearts was because their parents were discipling them. What would make their kids move back when they had never even seen Jerusalem? They hadn't even seen pictures of it. I think the answer is found by reading between the lines. They heard about Yahweh. They heard about all he had done for the nation of Israel through the years. They heard about his faithfulness, and they heard the promise from Jeremiah's letter over and over and over again. I'm sure they, it was stuck on the, on the refrigerators. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 11. I'm sure everybody memorized it. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And I think they clung to that promise. The majority, for the most part, for 70 years. And when God was stirring their hearts, I went on the first bus. You're going to be homeless. It's going to be hard. There's going to be people there that hate you. They're going to try to kill you. I want to go home. They had made a mess of their lives. They're clinging to a promise of God to get them through that mess. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Well, I know for sure we all have in one sense because the first man, Adam, sinned. We're all broken. We've all made, Adam has made a mess of our life because we're all born enemies and rebels of God. So in one sense, we have all made a mess of our lives because we're born enemies of God. And unless we repent and acknowledge that rebellion, acknowledge that we're enemies, and we turn to Jesus and cling to him, then we'll never be saved. We'll spend eternity in hell forever being punished for our rebellion. But if we fess up and say, I know I'm messed up, I know I'm broken, I know I'm a rebel, and I'm clinging to Jesus because he lived the life that I could never live because I'm a rebel. He died the death I deserve because I'm a rebel, and God raised him from the dead and he's coming again. If you can confess that and cling to that, then you'll be born again. So in one sense, we've all messed up our lives. And if you've messed up your lives in the sense that you are not born again, you're not a Christian, you're not a disciple, that's the first place you've got to start. But if you've done that, and you're a Christian, and you've made a mess of your life, there's still hope for you. Maybe you've turned from the Lord, and you're just making your way back. 
Maybe in one sense you've been in Babylon for 70 years, running away from the Lord. Maybe you've been in exile, held captive to your sin and the consequences of your sin. Well, guess what? This list of dead, homeless Israelites can give you the hope that you need today. They can encourage you. They can help you endure. Why? Because they are proof that God loves broken people. They are proof that God loves messed up people. They are proof that God takes messy people who have totally messed up their lives and he can turn it around for their good. Now, I'm not saying that this restoration will be easy. I'm not saying coming to Jesus or clinging to his promises means that God's grace is a magic wand and he waves it over your life and like, poof, your life is perfect. There's no more consequences. It's not difficult. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying God's grace is a magic wand. You wave over your life and everything's okay. That's not true. There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to our actions. Sometimes we really mess up our lives through our stupidity and our selfishness and our rebellion. Sometimes we make bad decisions. We sin. Sometimes we really jack up our lives. There's hope, yes, but God will not wave a magic wand. Most likely he will not wave a magic wand and make it all go away. He typically works through slow, steady grace. Slow, steady grace that moves like molasses, but gets you through moment by moment and day by day. His means of grace is slow, steady discipleship focused on the promises of God. For Israel, it was slow, steady discipleship for 70 years. 70 years of rehearsing the gospel. 70 years of trusting the promises of God. And God was faithful to them. Moment by moment, day by day. Through all the mess, Yahweh was faithful to Israel. Ezra 2, this seemingly boring list of hard to pronounce Israelite names. Ezra 2 is telling you, Christian, that you serve the same God. Ezra 2 is telling you to give God your mess. Ezra 2 is telling you that whenever you mess up, don't give up. Keep looking up. Keep looking to Jesus, the Redeemer. Ezra 2 is telling you, give God your mess. Give him your messy family. Give him your messy relationships. Give him your messy everything. Give him your mess. He loves your mess. He's a magnet. He's attracted to messy people. He's attracted to messy sinners who come to him and say, I have nothing apart from you. He likes being around people like that. He doesn't care how messy your life is. He says, invite me in, admit you're messy. I will come and I'll get you through it with slow, steady grace that moves like molasses, moment by moment, day by day. Why is God attracted to messy sinners who say, you're all I have, Jesus is all I have? The reason why is because your mess, our messiness, 
That's the raw material that God uses to bring about redemption in your life. Your mess is the raw material that God uses to bring redemption and to bring good in your life. Your mess is the raw material that Jesus uses to bring you good and to extend his kingdom in this world. So he says, give me your mess and watch what I can do with it. Paul Miller says, the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. Tell him where you are weary. If you don't begin with where you are, stressed out, messy, weary, distracted, if you don't begin with where you are, then where you are will sneak in the back door as you pray. Your mind will wander to where you are weary and where you are messy. The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what gets us in the front door. He's saying, your messiness, your weariness, your distractedness is what gets you into the front door of prayer. You just come and say, I'm a mess, God. The situation is a mess. I've messed it up. He continues, that's how the gospel works. That's how prayer works. So instead of being paralyzed by who you are, begin with who you are. That's how the gospel works. God begins with you. It's a little scary because you are messed up. God would much rather deal with the real thing. Jesus said that he came for sinners, for messed up people who keep messing up. Come dirty. Come messy. Come dirty to Jesus, just like the Israelites did. Just keep clinging to his promises, just like the Israelites did for 70 years. Keep clinging to promises like Romans 8, 28, which you've probably heard a million times, Christian. Well, think about how many times Israel heard the promise out of Jeremiah's letter for 70 years. They probably heard it all the time. Do what Charles Spurgeon said to do, which is exactly what I believe the Israelites did. Cast the burden of the present the sin of the past, and the fear of the future upon the Lord who forsaketh not his saints. Cast the burden of the present, the sin of the past, and the fear of the future upon the Lord who forsaketh not his saints. And I think that's what Israel did for 70 years. They didn't let the promises get stale or lose favor, and we shouldn't either. Cling to them. So cling to Romans eight twenty-eight to 30 that you've heard a million times because Jesus made it true for you. Where Paul says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, all your mess, all your junk, all your sin, all your consequences, everything in your life, Christian, works together for good. But only for those who are called according to his purpose. Only for Christians. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You can trust that. You can trust that today, Christian. Don't believe me? Well, if you struggle to believe that promise, then let the Apostle Paul tell you exactly why you can trust 
that promise. Let's let him finish his sentence and his paragraph. Let the Apostle Paul tell you in the rest of the verses that follow Romans 8, 28 through 30, exactly why you should remember our big idea today, which is whenever you mess up, don't give up. Keep looking up. Why? You can trust the promises of God. Why can you trust the promises of God even when you mess up? Well, let Paul tell you exactly why you can keep trusting the promise-keeping God. He says this in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who? Who? Who, Grace? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, that's Jesus, but gave him up for us all, all of our sin, all of our mess, all of our rebellion, he did not spare his own son, his only son. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You can trust the promises of God because God gave you his son, Jesus. I think it might be a good idea to stand to our feet and come messy and dirty to Jesus once again. After all, he's the one who made sure Ezra chapter 2 with all of these hard to pronounce Hebrew names, he's the one that made sure it got included in the Bible so that we would have encouragement, endurance, and hope from it. He included these messy people in the Bible. You know why? Because of Hebrews 2.11, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call me. I'm messed up. I'm jacked up. He's not ashamed to call me brother. He's not ashamed to call you brother and sister. That's why he made sure Ezra 2 has to be in the Bible to let my people know I am not ashamed of them. He's not ashamed to call these messy, messed up Israelites his own. And he's not ashamed to call messy, messed up you his own either. And I think that's plenty of reason to stand and sing with all of our messy hearts.